Welcome back to the VMP Anthology Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Winnestorfer. In this, the final episode of Season 2 of our podcast, Episode 3, The Sounds They Are Changing, we cover the final three albums of the newest edition of VMP Anthology, which, as you know by now, are Tata Vega's Totally Tata, Tina Marie's It Must Be Magic, and Erica Badu's Worldwide Underground. In this episode, I finish my talk with Susan Whitehall as we talk about how Tata Vega's genreless funk may have prevented her from becoming a star, but might have made her album sound timeless. And we talk about Tina Marie, who once threatened to kick Susan's ass, and who also never got the kind of credit she deserved. And in the final segment of this final episode, I head to LA to talk with current Motown president Ethiopia Habtamarium about working with Erica Badu, and how giving artists like Erica the space to create is the best thing a label can do. We also talk about how Ethiopia and her team are trying to keep the spirit of Motown alive in a modern world. And then finally, we say goodbye to this edition of VMP Anthology. Mm, Father, there's plenty of food And people are hungry There's plenty of love And people are lonely It's hard to actually verify this number, but there are reports that Motown had more than 200 signed active artists in the late 60s a label roster that would put modern-day major label powerhouses to shame. But when you think of that number, not all of the artists even got to make LPs or even saw their singles released. The thing that becomes apparent is that for reasons of timing, the song not being perfect to Gordy's ears, or just bad luck, there are probably dozens of Motown artists who could have made amazing records, or did make amazing records that are just ready to be dusted off and rediscovered. Tata Vega was very nearly one of those lost artists. She started her music career in 1963, but wouldn't make her first solo record until 1976. In those intervening 13 years, she became a backup and session singer for everyone from Stevie Wonder and Shaka Khan to Ray Charles and Patti LaBelle. She was part of the famous 20 Feet from Stardom documentary, which chronicled the lives of backup singers, for a reason. Tata also performed in the 1960s musical Hair, and performed in a series of groups with names like Pollution, that one had Dobie Gray in it, and her eventual group, Earth Choir, which got spotted by Barry Gordy at the Troubadour and who were signed to the short-lived Natural Resources label under Motown. When Earth Choir's album, a mostly unsuccessful mix of R&B and prog rock, didn't sell well, Gordy dumped the group and kept Tata. In 1976, Tata finally released Full Speed Ahead, her debut LP, and in 1977, released Totally Tata, her sparkling sophomore album. Though the album is pegged as a soul album, it's really more of a gospel record, hidden in late 1970s funk production. Come in Heaven, Earth is Calling, the album's unreal nine-minute centerpiece, is a showcase for Tata's strengths. She can add syllables to two-letter words, climbing somehow higher and higher with every note. In that one song, she goes from singing a ballad on a cloud with arms open to a Parliament-esque funk outro, serving as a master of ceremonies for a wild get-down. The rest of the album hinges on that dichotomy, Tata singing plaintive odes to a higher power, crossed with righteous funk. Tata never really got to be as famous as she maybe deserved, but she did reach some fame as the singer of the Spanish version of The Circle of Life from Lion King. She's a member of Elton John's backing group and still records contemporary gospel albums, and has had a resurgence since appearing in 20 Feet from Stardom. 
We chose Totally Tata for this box set because it's an ode to all of the artists on Motown who don't get into the retrospective playlists or the grabby montages, who still made amazing albums that for reasons outside of their control never got the attention they deserved. Tata Vega. So she also was a backup singer, but was kind of like around for a pretty long time before she actually got to make Totally Tata. Oh my, what a what a life story with her because she was pretty she was homeless at one point, living out in the, uh, Los Angeles and but she's got a great attitude about it and it just kept plugging away and was she was actually fronting rock groups and very influenced by Janis Joplin, which is interesting. Because you hear that with some other of the Motown women later on, and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, so she had that, she had that soul, gospel, Latin, uh, rock, all of this coming together, and they didn't quite know what to do with her, but that's good. It's like, why do you have to pigeonhole her? Come on, mm-hmm. just let her be what she is. Maybe it was off a little early for that kind of thing. Today, we don't have that much of a problem with a hybrid like that, but. At the time, I think they struggled with, especially with radio formats. Where do you put her? What is she? Yeah, this record is especially, it's like today it sounds still like pretty fresh because I think it's not tied down to like mm-hmm. any genre really. And I think she ended right. up being a victim of that in a way. that it's, like Right. But it's all the more reason. It's, it's fun to rediscover it and, mm-hmm. and listen to this and go, oh, my God, how this could play today. This would be great. Mm-hmm. And you can see how people like uh, Elton John and all that, they, they just love having her voice on their records and in concert. Yeah, and I, I just, like, when we, you know, we, this was a record that was sort of suggested to us by Motown. Um, they said, like, you should look at the Tata Vega because we were saying, like, we really wanted to pull, like, a Crate Digger record. Mm-hmm. And this is, you know, obviously fits that. And then you, you know, listen, having, like, head blown off by Come On In, uh, Earth or Heaven's Calling. Oh, oh that's that, the that's, one. Yeah, that song was like, I was not prepared for that like at all because mm-hmm. I had like no frame of reference for this prior to us picking this a couple months ago. Right. I have a different um, experience. My experience is that I'll hear something like that and Tata, I thought, was not at the front of my consciousness. So then I heard that and go, oh, I remember that. <laughs> Holy mackerel, what happened to that song? You know, it just kind of came and went really quickly that would have been something that Motown would have pitched me on I would have heard it and then all this other stuff was going on at the time Mm -hmm. there there again look at the year it was there's all sorts of things happening right here and music in general not Mm -hmm. just at Motown it's Mm -hmm. you know it's the punk explosion right it's everything and that's sort of the complication that happens at Motown at that time is like where is what are we doing yeah yeah what are where what are we fit into this and uh, then, then comes Rick James. Right. <laughs> Which yeah, brings us to <laughs> Tina Marie. Tina. Um, By the time the late 70s and early 80s rolled around, 
the sound of Young America had splintered into dozens of different genres. The assembly line soul of Motown replaced on the radio and in the hearts and minds of listeners by funk, disco, punk, and points in between. Motown's late 70s were a survey of disco moves, and its biggest success was the signing of a man named James Ambrose Johnson, who had played in bands since 1965, including the Minor Birds, which included Neil Young as a former member. Johnson would go on to fame and infamy as Rick James, who'd write some of the most iconic early 80s Funk and B albums and help Motown launch into the 80s with a new roster of stars. James's hand was so hot in the late 70s that Motown started to pair him with different performers as a producer and songwriter. James was slated to work with Diana Ross in order to give her a funk makeover, but that changed when James heard the demos from a singer on the Motown roster who had recently left her band to be a solo singer on the label. Her name was Mary Christine Brockert, but you know her better as Tina Marie. James wrote and co-produced much of Marie's debut LP, Wild and Peaceful, which became a modest hit on the R&B charts. Encouraging Marie to be a songwriter, she worked alongside James in the studio and learned production and songwriting from him. Marie became something of an urban legend during the first round of promotion of the album, as no one could believe that she was a white woman especially since the album was on Motown and produced by Rick James, and the album itself had no pictures of Marie on it to confirm or deny. But Marie became the first white woman performer on Soul Train in 1979, performing for a huge audience on TV and confirming that she was indeed white, going on to be the most prolific white performer in the history of the show. For her second album, Marie worked with Richard Rudolph, Maya Rudolph's dad, and most importantly, the producer and songwriter for his wife, Minnie Ripperton. Tina felt emboldened by what she learned from James, but asked Rudolph to help produce. For album number three, she self-produced and wrote most of it herself, which is a rarity for most artists on Motown and any major label at that time. Her fourth album would become her biggest hit on Motown. That album, It Must Be Magic, was self-produced and entirely written by Marie. Like James's records, it captures the raucous vibe of early 80s Motown where the glitter never stopped spraying and the bass lines felt like jackhammers to your skeletal structure. We chose it for VMP Anthology because it represents a shift in how women were allowed to behave on record at Motown. Gone were the gowns and the choreography, and gone were the songs written by Gordy-approved songwriters. Marie took control of her career on It Must Be Magic and had her biggest Motown hit. Yeah, Rick James coming is sort of like, that's the next, you know, you're saying there are these periods of Motown where there's this like creative boom and it's Stevie in the early 70s. Mm-hmm. And then I think it's Rick James in like the late 70s to early 80s where right. he's bringing his wild man funk stuff to. Even yeah. though, and, uh, although he's a typical Motown character in a way too, and that he reinvented himself because of course he had been at Motown years earlier with Neil Young. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, their they're little super was, group, and they met while he was draft dodging in Canada, <laughs> right? Isn't that the story? Yeah, Rick. But yeah, Tina Marie wants she wants uh, mock threatened to kick my ass, which is <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm very proud of that. I mean, I'm not that tall, but I think she'd be like here on me. It was we were at the same. I was having a book signing for Women of Motown, and she happened to be. At, uh, she was at the same 
in the same area downtown, and I didn't have her in Women of Motown, and she was pretending to be mad about that. <laughs> Maybe she was a little mad, too, but it was all class. I, I dealt with the classic era mm-hmm. in my book. I didn't go into the 70s, which is what I told the go-between who, Tina wants to kick your ass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. That's so, not something to take lightly. Yeah. So I'll get to you. I'll get to her in volume two. I swear. Mm-hmm. But sadly, I never got to because I, I love that stuff. Mm-hmm. And, I, and again, I was listening to so much stuff at that point. I was editor of Cream, that I didn't get to pay as much attention as I would have liked. Because when you play it now, it's just like, oh man, go for it. And again, Gordy found her in a in a club. Mm-hmm. And she's playing in a rock band. In a rock like, band, yeah. yeah. Fronting a rock band. And uh, heard something in her voice. Had little projects that didn't work out. And then uh, when, once uh, Rick got into the picture, Rick knew what to do with her. And that just was, you know, they exploded personally, professionally. And As he, most and people who came into contact with Rick did. He, right, <laughs> right. Yeah. Now, Gordy claims that he... He saw her potential as a songwriter-producer, um, but it was definitely Rick James who kind of brought that out in her as well. And that was there from the early days. But unlike Mary Wells, she was encouraged and and did it more and more as time went on and took more control of her albums as a producer and then ultimately had that dispute with them and then split. But mm-hmm. now this, this stuff's just great. Yeah, and this record is like... <laughs> it's you know it, it, yeah it, you just have no to sort of chuckle yeah that. yeah it's all it's all killer no filler and it's just it's like this it's like you just have to listen to it mm-hmm. but like it's it's just hard to explain what it's like like this is another one I was I was you know a little bit familiar with her I knew the the single from this but didn't know like <laughs> how deep the album square would biz. go yeah I knew square biz um, but yeah just like how tight. And like punch to the chest, this record is. And Barry Gordy even says in his memoir that he was struggling and wondering what is the future going to be for us, which happened a few times in Motown history. But at this point, when it happened, Tina Marie's like, okay, this opened another door, and this is where we're going. Mm-hmm. And I, I read the story about uh, nobody knowing that she was white mm. on the first album, but mm-hmm. like. Um, you know, that she was the most successful white artist ever signed to Motown. And when she first, like, her first record came out, there's no picture of her in it. Mm-hmm. And there was, like, an urban, it was, like, an urban legend that, like, <laughs> it's a white woman on Motown that Rick James produced. And mm. everybody's like, no way. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't until she's on Soul Train that, okay. yeah. She was kind of the female Bobby Caldwell. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Except she was touring a lot and she had a lot more hits than Bobby did maybe and so. People did see her on TV and on live and realized she's she's not black. But I think it was, um, I heard the same thing with, uh, oh, um, I just want to celebrate, Rare Earth. Rare Earth used to, they, they also were not pictured on their albums and they run Motown mm-hmm. and eventually Rare Earth Records. But they would come out because the Motown machine would be doing the promotion for these acts, including her and they knew they were working all their black music sources, so and they were going, yeah, we love this, yeah. But then the band would go play, and Rare Earth came out, and everybody was black in the audience, and they were like, 
who are these white boys? <laughs> who are they? Mm-hmm. Get them off the stage. No, they loved them once they started singing. Mm-hmm. Same thing with Tina. That she had this great in, in uh, black audience. And mm-hmm. they, 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 as soon as they heard her start singing, they're like, yeah, that's her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you mentioned that you kind of call her a, a proto-rapper mm-hmm. on there. And I think that is like sort of a, a, like a revelation too. A little bit on this record, but largely on the one previous to this too, where you like, you hear some of the stuff on her records and it's like, this is where some, you know, like w- this feels like a, a DNA, piece part of the DNA of like every female rapper that's mm-hmm. come since. Yeah. yeah. And it's funny. I don't know what she would be doing if had she lived um, today, but uh, I know it, it's funny that she was at the nexus of that at the time mm-hmm. of all people. And uh, but she is. She's in the DNA. Motown was an independent record company for more than 30 years until Barry Gordy finally opted to sell it in 1994 to Polygram. In 1999, it was absorbed into the Universal Music Group, where it remains today. The early 90s were not a period of resting on any laurels for the label, however. They had a varied, super successful roster that included Boys to Men, Brian McKnight, and an eccentric R&B singer who goes by Erica Badu. Born around when Motown moved to LA, Badu is from Dallas, Texas, where she still lives today, 1,200 miles south of Hitsville. Discovered by a producer named Kadar Massenberg, who coined the genre neo-soul, Badu recorded a demo that got her Motown's attention, culminating in her debut LP, 1997's Baduism. She followed that record up with 2000's Mama's Gun. After a three-year period of touring and furious recording, Badu felt zapped. She experienced a period of writer's block. In the summer of 2002, she decided getting on the road was the way to break her out of her stasis, which worked as she left the frustrated artist tour with new songs and ideas that coalesced into her third LP and the one we chose for this box set, Worldwide Underground. Featuring a looser, freeform feel when compared to her first two LPs that were neo-soul classics, Worldwide Underground is a cross between free jazz vocals and 21st century soul a searching, airy, and funky album that captures Badu at an important juncture in her career, between her earlier successes and her later albums beloved for their artistic daringness. Like Motown Records, Badu is never comfortable in the past and is always moving into new universes. Motown had gone through so many different changes, and I remember in the the initial meeting I had, they were like, what's your perspective of Motown? And I was like, well, I'll give you my viewpoint from what my life has been. And I talked a lot about Lionel and Stevie and what seeing Diana Ross meant for me as a kid, but also what Boys to Men meant to me and what, like, these Brian McKnight records and, like, DeBarge. Like, DeBarge and then Erica, who I adore and Mm -hmm. am obsessed with you know um and um my boss was like I agree with you I agree with your vision go do it and it was um it's been a journey it's been a journey it's been one of the biggest challenges of my career because Motown has such a rich history and legacy and I don't take that responsibility lightly 
Um, I think one of the things that's been important for us as a company when bringing it into the future is to honor the legacy, to not run away from such a rich history and the greatness that was achieved and actually to highlight it and to tell the many stories that exist throughout every decade. Because, of course, the 60s was the magical foundation of where it built, but the work that they did then continued to transcend through time. And Motown became a platform for incredible talent to and brought people together through the music around the world, and it continued to do that. So I would, you know, I'm like, yes, you know, Marvin and what he did with what's going on and what Diana did and what, you know, the Supremes and the Temptations. and the, I mean, it's mind-boggling, and you think about, you know, the Jackson 5 and the change that happened then. And then... Rick James mm-hmm. and Tina Marie and DeBar like DeBarge and it just continued to grow and evolve every decade. But my my goal has been to make it a healthier company. You know what I mean? To mm-hmm. to to bring Motown back in a way that doesn't make people think of just a black and white image. You know what I mean? And to to really honor it by allowing it to be a platform for other great creators of today. You know and um. And to also never get in a place where I want to honor what Motown did so that other entrepreneurs that are living in the spirit of what Barry Gordy did back then, which no one thought would be possible. Like, let us be a platform for other entrepreneurs that live in the spirit of and are operating in the spirit of of what he created then. So it's been through, you know, of course, signing great talent, artist development, building things up that we believe in, but also identifying people that we think can help create a platform for other talent coming out of their areas. So, um, you know, we did a deal with Quality Control mm-hmm. out of Atlanta, um, and they've kind of been like our hip-hop hub. and Right, Migos. We, yeah, Migos, Yachty, and Lil Baby. And, and it's been fun, personally for me, too, because out of Atlanta, which is where I'm from, it's like that synergy of it happening. But there are modern-day you know, version of what Motown was for kids in the 60s, you know, Um, which is dope. And then being able to work with people like Erica Badu and Neo um, and Amigos and, you know, a new Acneomza that people don't know of yet, but they soon will. You know what I mean? Like that is a privilege and an honor that I don't take lightly. And also to be able to work with the incredible creative executives that are a part of our team that are also operating with a level of pride around being at Motown, you know, and what that stands for and what that, you know, and we're still uncovering so many incredible stories that have existed throughout the years. You hear so much, you know what I mm-hmm. mean? Um, That's been a fun part of this for me is like, you know, like finding out about Cyrita. Yeah. Uh-huh. And like, you know, the, the amount of albums that she made on Motown in the 70s that are like these incredible records. Yes. That like... it's, it's so funny. So Clarence Avon is one of my mentors. And I remember, like, you know, it's been a I've been here for, so yeah, five years. And in the first two and a half years, it was super tough. I basically felt like it was a startup with like a huge boulder on our back, you know. Mm-hmm. And Clarence was like, baby, just stay in the fight. <laughs> he was like, you, you, they tell you about all the hits, but they don't tell you about all the ones that weren't hits. And I understood what he meant through my own discovery process of they created so much music all the time, mm-hmm. but they just were relentless and they never gave up, you know. And so we 
operate in that same place. Like, if you find something that's great, create the music and just go. Put it out. The artist has to have the work ethic. They're willing to put on a great show and listen or whatever. But, yeah, you find gems. There are Mm -hmm. gems in our catalog. There are, like... I think there was, like, I was reading this in a book that at some point in the 60s, there were like 200 artists under contract to Motown. Like, well, you can you have... imagine dealing with like a, a roster of 200? Yeah, because, and also as a success happened, can you imagine there was like the rock version of the label, the country version of the, I mean, if you go to Hitsville, which I suggest everyone goes and visits Hitsville, the museum is incredible, but you get to see the, the, the incredible kind of like um, the way Barry Gordy thought about the company back then, which people wouldn't even imagine. People don't even think that way today. Like you can operate in every genre through a Motown lens. You know what I Mm -hmm. mean? And he did that because you don't see color lines or genres when you're creating music. It's all just about great fucking music and whatever the feeling is when people are collaborating and creating. And so he operated from that space and he was inspired by so much, you know, and the whole team did. I mean, it's been it's been beautiful for me to like also discover the family environment that was created there, which is true. You know, I've had the pleasure of building a relationship with Mr. Gordy, um, which I'm extremely thankful for and grateful for. And, you know, the foundation of everything for that company was love and they they were a family mm-hmm. and getting to meet Smokey and you know, Stevie and everyone over the years, I'm like, okay, that's real. You know yeah, what I mean? Smokey Robinson used to mow the lawn right. at Hitsville. <laughs> like, that's how Well, much, everyone yeah. had to do everything, right? right. Like, yeah. they were in it together. Mm-hmm. You probably know a little more than I did, too. Uh, I mean, I, I yeah, had to. Yeah, you had to. I, you've I've done, done your research. history. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. I didn't want to come in here and not know anything. Right, you know? right, 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 yeah. But, yeah, like, and I think... The interesting, like, you know, reading the story of how Motown f- was founded, where Barry had to go to his sisters mm-hmm. and his mom and ask for a check to start I, the label. I, yeah. As a family unit, I'm like, that's incredible. People don't always have that, like a family unit that's going to give you a loan and have that structure mm-hmm. in place. It was really great. And the family unit that still exists. I mean, his sister believing him, believing in him and his... um. His niece runs the Hitsville Museum, but they all operate with such a sense of pride. I had the pleasure of, um, we sponsored Michelle Obama's Becoming Book Tour and in Detroit. We went there and we were able to host Mrs. Obama at Hitsville. And and um, they were just so proud to have her there. And she was there talking to some kids or whatever, but they were talking about the history of Motown. And um, Barry's niece just said to me, she was like, my grandmother would be so proud. And I was like, oh, okay, you've done good. You know what I mean? Like, this is a, a good moment because the family was mm-hmm. proud. But, um, yeah, that was it was beautiful that he had that. And, and I've met his kids over time, yeah. Yeah. Um, you sort of covered this a little bit, but, like, how much of a struggle sort of was it to, uh, you know, come in and say, like, Migos are a Motown artist, you know, because it's, it's, it's so I don't even know if I had the words to describe it. But to me, it was really important when you think about Motown, the sound of young America. Right. Yeah. And that's that's the th- that's the thing. That's and, what it was then. Yeah. And to really represent that today, you know, I'm uh, again, I come from being a music publisher first and working with songwriters and producers. So I'm actually really a purist at my core. And so my initial thought 
was a very kind of old school mentality around like, oh, I can't have hip hop, uh, you know, on Motown. Mm-hmm. But that's not true. I just mentioned that Barry Gordy had the country version of the label or whatever. In today's young America, hip hop is a fluid genre. There are many iterations of it, but also it's youth culture. And so that was important. And we were deliberate in making sure we brought Motown to the forefront in that way. But I'm also, and what I think is super meaningful and important is building up another company at the same time and highlighting quality control and telling that story without just saying, hi, I'm telling a story. See, Motown quality control. Do you get it? It's just natural and authentic to see other entrepreneurs and another label that we've partnered with to help them grow their brand. And it's almost... Not almost. It really is an inspiring story because what he did then inspired so many people that continue to go on over time. And it, you could reference the Def Jam. You could reference a, what a LaFace was or a Bad Boy or a Rock Nation. They all live in the spirit of what Barry Gordy did first, what Motown did first. And to me, the partnership with Quality Control is a derivative of that, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Barry was really like sort of the first guy to be like, we, we're going to take control of, like, everything. Mm-hmm. We're going to do songwriting. We're yep. going to do choreography is going to be here. Like Etiquette classes. Yeah, you know, that too, and, yeah. And he was very aware of the times and knew in order for people to digest black talent, um, there had to be a certain persona, et cetera, that went along with it. So he made sure he had the right people in place to help bring that to the world. And, I mean, we've seen what that level of thought process and attention to detail went on to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I guess talk about working with uh, Erica Badu, because we're uh, Worldwide Underground is the last album in our box set. Oh, okay. So that we're doing, like, that hasn't been reissued since it came out, I don't Mm -hmm, think. mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. uh, what is it like working with an artist like Erica Badu? Um, So I have such respect and I'm definitely a fan of Erica, but her greatness and her level of creativity, you just leave, you allow her to have the space and room to be inspired to create because she's a creator first in all forms. And um, she knows that we honor and respect that. We were able to work on a project together, you know, the but you can't use my phone, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, that project. And that was super, super fun. And, and, um, She's been working on another record for a while now, but she's been in Africa, you know, trying out different sounds and drums. And um, she's just finding her inspiration, but she is Erica, like Madonna, Erica. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. she is Erica Badu. It's been a pleasure to get to know her and to see the many areas in which she is a true artist. And um, you just leave her breaks. We celebrated the Baduism 20th anniversary last year. She loves and respects her work as well. You know what I mean? It honors her history and music and the place that she is um, created and inspired for others. You know, mm-hmm. she's constantly transcending and growing. So I love her. I love her. Yeah. It seems like she is never like hemmed in by what she did before. No. It's like it's almost like a complete start over every time she makes a new record. She allows herself to be inspired and she pushes herself and she's conscious of um it's more about being self-aware and conscious of who she is and what inspires her and living her truth and 
the way it resonates with other people. I think it's beautiful to watch and see what she's coming from such a pure place. You used to call me on myself, you The last question I sort of have is, you know, where do you want to take Motown in the future? You know, because we're this is celebrating the 60th yeah. year of the label. Yeah. Uh, you know, do you do you sort of think I, I did one of these with Don Waz from okay. Moon Out, and mm. it was sort of like what do you think, like, the next 80 years? You know, for this is the next 60. Like, what? Look, I think but, at yeah. the core of it, it's about great songs and great talent, and that will always be tried and true for any label, right? But, you know, it's interesting. When I, fir- when I first took on the role, there was this kind of marginalized perspective when it came to black talent again, which I think is what they dealt with in the early days of Motown. And one of my goals is to never have to deal with that again. You know, like we can talk about boys to men who were massive at that time, but to never get in a place where you feel like you have to prove yourself again, it just is about the great songs and the great talent. So if Motown can be that platform for other talent and support other entrepreneurs at the same time, that I think will make sure we never feel like we have to be in that position of proving our worth and that we are able of cap- or capable of having great songs that can touch the world and connect people around the world. So that's my bigger goal. Okay. Um, but in real time, it's to 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 be a label that will support great talent and help artists bring their vision to the world and connect people through song. You know, they they were the best at that connecting people through songs. So yeah. Okay. So do you guys have anything like big events planned or anything for the 60th? We've been celebrating the 60th anniversary throughout all of this year. There was a CBS special that came earlier this year. But one of the great things we've been able to work on is a documentary around Motown and how it all kind of came to be the foundation of the label. So it's focused on 59 to 69, the first 10 years. Okay. You know, Barry Gordy worked at a factory, a car factory, and his kind of mindset and how he structured the labels and the thought process of the artist development department, the A&R department, the promotions department, how it all worked together. So he was genius in that he recorded every A&R meeting Wow. He had, like, um, footage of, you know, the Motown cookouts with the artists and the staff and all this incredible footage that had been there. And myself, along with our chairman of Capital Music Group, um, were able to, like, get him to allow us to put together a doc and work with him on a documentary to tell that story. Because you think about today's times, everything that I'm telling you about people operating in the spirit of Barry Gordy, they may not know that they they may not be conscious of that it was Motown even existing that it made it possible for them to know that they could do it. So, mm-hmm. and even you think of, you know, contemporary artists today, everyone who's a music lover, music creator, or a fan of music, period, will want to know how Motown came to be. And so we've been working on this documentary that'll come out end of August okay. on Showtime. Cool. And, um... So yeah, I'm very. It's called Hitsfield, the making of make the making of Motown. So we're excited for that to come out. That's part of our big celebration for the 60th anniversary. We've actually been working on it for about three years, and it just turned out it came in our 
60th year, so it's great. So you had to, yeah, you'd have started working on it pretty oh, much yeah, right yeah, after yeah, you yeah. got here. Absolutely, huh? yeah. absolutely, yeah. It was like, yeah, the first two years, really hard time. All this footage, let's make a documentary and let's have, you know, it's it's been, um, but it's been a, a great journey. We're excited for that to come out. And there you have it. That's the end of this season of the VMP Anthology Podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to these four episodes. Putting these podcasts together is a lot of hard work for us here at VMP Midwest HQ, and it's crazy to know how many of you are out there listening to this. Also, a sincere thanks again for taking this ride with us on the VMP Anthology experience. We know that this isn't necessarily a light undertaking for you to dive into, and we love having you along for this. If you've been around for both anthologies, thank you so much. You make doing this job possible. And delivering you these podcasts and these records is an unreal thing we get to do here at VMP. If you're here for the first time, welcome. Happy to have you. I hope we've taught you some stories about some amazing performers and albums and sent you some records you enjoy and love. We hope you've enjoyed the new format for Anthology. And if not, please let us know in the survey we send out at the end of this experience. A special thank you to Motown Records and Barry Gordy and his sisters who made all this amazing music possible. And thanks to Susan Whitehall and Ethiopia Habtamarium for sitting for interviews for this. And thanks to everybody else behind the scenes who made this podcast happen. We should be announcing the next edition of VMP Anthology fairly soon. It's a box set with an electronic label we love for their 20th anniversary. This season of VMP Anthology was hosted and written by me, Andrew Wannestorfer. It's produced by Gabe Harder with assistance from Clay Carnell and Jonah Graber. Remember, listen to more Marvelettes. Hey,